It's such a pleasure to see you all. I'm Lizzie Barker, the Stanford Calderwood Director here at the Athenaeum, and I'm delighted to see such a full house on what is for us the equivalent of the first day of the new school year. We have a really wonderful program in store, one that I dare say is likely to spur other initiatives here, perhaps an architecture book discussion group? Hmm? It's a possibility. I actually don't have an official role in tonight's proceedings other than to take the blame because I'm very interested in this architectural moment and as long ago as several months ago mentioned to my talented colleague Hannah the renewed interest in this period in architecture and wouldn't it be nice if we did something and I feel very fortunate I feel a little bit like the person who said gosh I'd love to have a cupcake someday and instead was surprised when they wheeled out a 10 layer cake I think we have a really wonderful evening in store, and I will turn things over to Hannah and let you enjoy and discuss, and hope that you know that the real treat at the end of this is the chance to see some real things with us upstairs. So be sure that you don't only make time for the wine and cheese, but also look at some of the original artifacts. Thanks. Welcome. As Lizzie said, my name is Hannah Weissman. I'm the Director of Education. And before we get started tonight, please take a moment to silence any cell phones, electronic devices you may have, and to please note the emergency exits. We have one here at the front of the room on your left, and the doors you came in this evening are also another emergency exit. Um, as was just mentioned, I invite you after our formal presentation to join our curator of prints and photographs, Katharina Slaughterback, in the special collections reading room on the second floor. We have uh, materials pulled from the prints and photographs collection that document the development of City Hall, Plaza, Government Center, um, as well as modern architecture in Boston. It's my great pleasure to turn the lectern over to Mary Otis Stevens, um, whose own remarkable architectural career included the embrace of concrete as a building material. Uh, she's perhaps most well known for the 1965 Lincoln House, a curvilinear exposed concrete and glass house that had no interior doors that she and Thomas McNulty designed and built for their family. Throughout her career, Ms. Stevens challenged the conventions of architectural design and incorporated social ideals into her designs. We're honored to have her here tonight to introduce our event and to offer questions for our panelists to consider during their presentation. Please join me in welcoming Mary Otis Stevens. Thank you. Oh, and welcome to this evening's program, Heroism and Hubris, a good title because any creative act that breaks from a society's norm ex exhibits both. It's a great pleasure to introduce our two speakers uh, who uh, are very much involved in our, the history of architecture here, and uh, most important, uh, the, the book Heroic Concrete Architecture in the New Boston, the book under discussion tonight. 
Keith Morgan, the distinguished architectural historian in the tradition of Lewis Mumford, appraises the built environment in a social and cultural context. Professor Emeritus of History of Art and Architecture and New England Studies at Boston University. He is an admired teacher, scholar, and author. A number of his publications are on view following this program in the second floor reading room. I think this audience will be particularly interested in his Community by Design, the Olmsted Office and the Development of Brookline, Massachusetts, 1880 to 1936, which was awarded the Ruth Emery Book Prize from the Victorian Society. Mark Pasnick, one of the three authors of Heroic, is a founding principal of Over Under, an architectural and design collaborative. Uh, he's co-director of the Pink Comma Gallery and a professor of architecture at Wentworth Institute of Technology. Mark previously taught at the California College of the Arts, Carnegie Mellon University, Northeastern University, and the Rhode Island School of Design. Mark received the AIA Young Architects Award in 2013 and serves on the Boston Art Commission and on the executive board of the Boston Society of Architects. What our two speakers will address is the vision expressed in concrete architecture that emerged in Boston and environs during the 1960s and 70s. Identified with bold initiatives in city planning, backed up by government agencies, and with financial investment from leading public and private institutions, these projects help transform our urban landscape. Remarkable then, but how do architects, critics, and the public view these concepts and the buildings they embody today? Professor Morgan will now take over with a brief assessment of the period and frame the topics for discussion. Mark will follow with his presentation based on material from Heroic. Professor Morgan follows with a few further questions that he and Mark will then discuss together. A short period for questions and comments from the audience will conclude the program, and both speakers will be available at the reception, book signing, now, let's welcome Keith Morgan and Mark Pasnick. Good evening. Thank you, Mary. In case you were wondering, I'm the Keith Morgan of the duo up here. I obviously wouldn't be winning the Young Architect Award <laughs> in 2013. Um, so I'm the gray hair that is trying to set the case uh, for a period of Boston architecture that I inherited when I arrived to teach at Boston University starting in 1980. And I came, to have full disclosure, to become initially the director of the Historic Preservation Program at Boston University. So I was set up to be an antagonist to all that modernism and specifically <laughs> concrete architecture was supposed to represent. 
Um, I got over it fairly quickly as I became more and more excited by and experienced more of what Boston had been doing in the very heady period that I'd extend from about 1949 up to the period of the Bicentennial. Now, you could think that the Athenaeum is an inappropriate location for a conversation like this because perhaps the Athenaeum distanced itself completely from all these radical ideas that are happening a block or so away. But as many, as some of you in the room who were here in those days may remember, <clears throat> the Athenaeum was as engaged with what was happening in the new Boston and the challenges of a deeply faltering economy. And I'm using as one of my point people this evening, Walter Muir Whitehill, the gray-bearded man at the very top of the screen there, who was the director of the Boston Athenaeum from 1946 to 73, if I'm remembering his um, dates correctly. I didn't know Walter here, but I'd run into him in Washington, D.C. when I was working on my dissertation at Dumbarton Oaks. So I was admiring his work before I knew what his impact had been. But Walter, who began his career as an architectural historian, focused on the Spanish Middle Ages, rapidly extended his interest into the current conditions of the city in which he was operating. He moved forward from the Middle Ages to an interest in Andrea Palladio onto um, his fascination with the French Swiss architect Le Corbusier and for that matter, modern sculptors like David Smith. So don't put Walter in some sort of antiquated cage in the background. He was very much involved with everything was happening in the current scene. And of course, we're indebted to him for key documents in Boston history, including his Everybody Must Read, Boston Topographical History. And then I think important for us this evening and perhaps less widely read these days uh, is the volume he was asked to author on centers of civilization in the United States. And he chose to focus on the period in Boston that represents the political career of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. So he was both a medievalist and very much a presentist. And of course, the Athenaeum itself, located right there, as you know, in the plan, was a few blocks from the West End, which had been bulldozed, 3,000 buildings torn down, uh, or the modern city uh, and its governor, government center complex that you see there at the top of the screen. So before we get to concrete modernism, let's stop and think about other things of that moment. One of which is the thing we're celebrating this year, and that is the 40th anniversary of the salvation and repurposing of the Quincy Market Complex and the adjacent Faneuil Hall. Here's an old photograph that shows Quincy Market before it becomes the commercial uh, new whiz kid that sucked people back into the center city after their flight to the suburbs. It is a tough monumental, single color, single material building that I want you to keep in mind. It changes from that authentic look uh, under the influence of uh, people uh, such as uh, <clears throat> Mayor Kevin Lynch, uh, James Rouse, the real estate developer, Ben Thompson and his wife Jane, who sadly has just recently died. And the hard concrete form gets 
obviously camouflaged in the world of modern commercial marketing uh, to recreate <laughs> something called the Faneuil Hall Festival Marketplace that we all know, love, and perhaps celebrate, or at least did at one time. And you could easily convince yourself, as I've heard people both on television and the newspaper recently saying, is that the Quincy Market Complex reclamation was really the economic turning point in the history of the city. I think that is an incorrect understanding of actually what occurred and all the commercial activity that you see in the 1980s and 90s spilling out from the reclamation of the marketplace in that slide would not be possible if it hadn't been for the hubristic, heroic, uh, very nervy activities of the period of urban renewal, which many people revile, and of the concrete architectural hubris that better than anything else, New Boston City Hall by Coleman McKinnell Knowles represents. So thinking about this and the fact that I often find people whinging about concrete as the worst possible material, including a recent journalist who went on and on about how terrible the Philip Johnson building is at the Boston Public Library because of all that miles and miles of concrete, which is really miles and miles of granite. So I think we have this phobia of things that are white and big and simple and monumental and from the middle of the, of the 20th century are inherently evil and, of course, always built of concrete. So the granite columns of the monumental facade of Quincy Market on one side versus the concrete columns of the Coleman McKinnell uh, Boston Five Cent Savings Bank a few blocks away. Think about them in juxtaposition with each other and perhaps concrete won't be quite as scary as it was <laughs> before. Um, now, full disclosure, although I'm not one of the principal authors of the heroic uh, monograph, uh, Mark and his colleagues are totally to be given the credit. They naively invited some older <laughs> scholars to offer essays in that, and I was delighted to be asked to think about something that I had never looked at before, even though I've long been interested in planning history. And that's the 1965-75 general plan for the city of Boston and its regional core, the cover of which you see in the upper left-hand corner of this slide. If you don't have a copy, look for it and use in rare bookshops. If you do have a copy, make sure you guard it carefully in your library and begin to look at it again. To my knowledge, it really is the only moment in the entire history of the city of Boston in which we intelligently, comprehensively sat down and created a uniform template for development, and therefore it needs to be celebrated for that reason. It's also done at a very important turning point in 1965, after the devastation of early planning and the hideous mistakes of leveling the West End or areas of the South End, or perhaps the overbuilding of the Prudential Complex area, it was published at a time when the city of Boston was beginning its downward spire that is partially represented by this graph here. The graph naively suggests that trend is about to be reversed, but it isn't, and it continues to fall from the 50s down to the 1980s when the city loses 330,000 people to out-migration primarily to the suburbs. So keep that in mind of just how desperate the conditions were. 
Uh, and finally, to be a segue to Mark and his opportunity to present the kinds of issues that he and his colleagues were dealing with in uh, Heroic. Um, I introduce two people that you perhaps know well already. Edward Logue, the man who was brought here in 1960 to redirect the mess that urban renewal had gotten itself into. Uh, and then uh, one man that cannot be overlooked as one of the key figures in the overall history of Boston urbanistically and architecturally is the young I.M. Pei, whom you see peering up from the bottom there, uh, peering out at drawings such as the master plan for the government center complex that I.M. Pei is responsible for envisioning. So large visions, brave visions, hubristic visions, heroic visions, uh, and a desperate environment economically and in many ways uh, politically that suddenly the public sector set out to try and achieve. I also include Iampe and Logue at this moment because they're young men. They're young men, not so different from Charles Bullfinch at the point that he's designing the Massachusetts State House, or Henry Hobson Richardson when he's designing Trinity Church in Copley Square. People who are pushing the envelope forward and making not only locals, but really the whole nation pay attention to what's going on in Boston. Now I'll shut it up and turn it over <laughs> to Mark, and I'm sure I've already overextended. So with apologies, and I'll be back. Uh, it's great to be here um, and uh, with Keith, who's been a part of the project uh, quite a lot, and also with Mary, to be introduced by her. She was the uh, feistiest interview we had. Uh, she told us our title was terrible, uh, and you can read that in her interview. It's great. It was uh, a wonderful pushback on us and made us think a lot more about the project itself. Uh, but the project originated with the mayor, uh, Mayor Menino, calling for the demolition or sale of Boston City Hall. A group of us decided that we, we should really think about that a little bit more, so we did some proposals for how City Hall could be changed and made better. Uh, and then it got us thinking about all of this concrete in the city, uh, the real concrete, that there was so much of it, uh, and that it had really, we'd sort of inherited a story about it that was incredibly negative, that it was uh, terrible buildings and a terrible time of urban renewal. Uh, and we wanted to investigate that, maybe not to say that everything was perfect from that era, but to actually tell a deeper story about that as we consider what these now 50-year-old buildings will be like in the future uh, of our city. Uh, so the book itself covers a couple of different things. We have a section dedicated to historical essays with Keith and uh, several other uh, prominent historians uh, in the book, uh, a section dedicated to interviews with many of the protagonists from the time, people who were thinking about these issues, Mary being one of them, uh, and then a section of 23 buildings uh, that we had to cull from about 150 buildings that we'd been looking at and tracking uh, over the period, what we called the Heroic Project. Um, and our goal was to document them, to think about them, and to find the story behind them, and then to portray that to the public, to uh, maybe raise the level of discourse about these buildings and the meaning of this time period, to try to reframe it uh, in a new way. And many of these buildings, I think, are quite familiar to you. Obviously, City Hall, we like to call City Hall the third rail of this time period because it <laughs> charges people up in such a strong way. Uh, Paul Rudolph's Government Service Center, an awesome building, uh, also a crazy building. Uh, uh, wonderful Tad Stahl, who I think uh, has been a member here uh, before he passed away. He was a great contributor to the project, somebody who uh, constantly guided us through the project before he passed away. Um, 
uh, Sertz, Jose Luis Sertz's work at uh, many different sites. Uh, Marcel, but that was specifically uh, Boston. Uh, yeah. Oh, I shouldn't. Let's I shouldn't. not move along too quickly <laughs> I, there. I we don't have that many buildings to brag about. So. <laughs> BU, yes, BU is here. Uh, and I don't know if many of you know, but Marcel Breuer's office has a project here. Very few people, I think, really. I, I work with architects at the school at Wentworth, and almost none of my colleagues realized that only three blocks away was a Marcel Breuer building. Um, uh, of course, Le Corbusier's uh, only work in North America. Uh, and then Mary's house. Uh, so a real range of projects. Uh, and if you think of Boston as a museum of concrete architecture, it certainly has the best collection of any city in the US. Um, so we often get asked, why heroic? Why did we uh, coin this term? Uh, and we didn't actually coin this term, but we decided to apply it in a way that was different from what the typical language of concrete modernism is referred to, brutalism, what we like to call the B word now. Uh, it's a very negative starting point. Uh, and in fact, what's interesting about it, in all the architects that we spoke to, none of them considered themselves brutalists. Uh, Mary was the only one who was a little bit sympathetic to some of the ideas in our conversation, but also I don't think you consider yourself a brutalist. Uh, so it comes with a kind of negative attitude. It comes out of the British tradition where there's a certain sense of the realities, the raw realities of the material, the time, the construction techniques. Uh, many of these aspects are still part of the American tradition, but I, uh, we sort of believe that the American tradition is somewhat different, especially in its focus on a civic presence, of creating a monumental form with a civic presence. It's quite different from the British tradition around which uh, the new brutalism was built. Uh, the term heroic, though, is actually, so one of the main protagonists of New Brutalism is the uh, Allison and Peter Smithson, the British architects. Uh, the first brutalist building is attributed to them. It's called the Hunstanton School. Uh, it's actually a glass and steel building, surprisingly. It's not concrete at all. Uh, but they wrote a book called The Heroic Period of Modern Architecture, referring back to a past era that preceded them, the early uh, years of modernism, and wanting to reachieve that kind of aspiration that existed early uh, in the thinking of modernism, wanting to kind of return that back to uh, the way architects practiced. Uh, so the word heroic, didn't, we didn't coin it. It's something that came out of the tradition. On the other hand, uh, shortly after the concrete period, uh, Venturi and Scott Brown published uh, scathing critiques on modernism and particularly on uh, concrete modernism. And they uh, use heroic as a negative term. They talk about the heroic and original uh, language of modernism and they contrast it with the uh, ugly and ordinary language. And surprisingly, they want ugly and ordinary. They want the sort of everyday. And that's the language that really led into postmodernism as a movement, a return back to everyday ideas uh, and also a return back to history. So for us, heroic actually has this dual aspect. It's both a more positive term than brutalism, but it also has an underlying uh, almost Achilles heel type of uh, belief that this, this hubris side is part of what heroic encompasses. So for us, it was a more attractive term to use uh, for this work of architecture. Uh, why Boston then? I think Keith alluded this, to this a little bit, but Boston uh, went through a vast transformation. We're tracking really from 1960 to 1976, uh, from Ed Logue's arrival uh, to the completion of, or the opening of the, the Bicentennial and uh, Faneuil Hall Marketplace. Uh, but prior to that, in the decades prior, the city had really struggled economically in many different ways. This is a film by the Chamber of Commerce called 
City in a Shadow from 1957. It's a little bit propagandistic, uh, but it's also really telling. I mean, there's, a, there's one of these 1950s voiceover of doom uh, talking about the conditions in Boston. It's really great. Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but it also exposes the films are, uh, you know, showing the state of some of these neighborhoods in Boston that were really dilapidated in horrible shape. Uh, and of course, the solution, you know, it gets very positive with good music when urban renewal comes along and tries to save us from it. Um, uh, and in fact, urban renewal uh, obviously was charged with some horrible uh, tasks that, that it accomplished, but we're trying to look at a maybe more nuanced, more even-handed understanding of its role in shaping how the city transformed itself, uh, how this new Boston came about, uh, and what it meant, and where there were mistakes, but also where we're indebted to uh, transformation of the city and modernization of the whole city during this period by uh, strong action of a central government. Keith mentioned the, the master plan of this time. It's the last time we did a master plan. We're currently conducting a new one. The first, uh, the first the yeah, yeah. Uh, so 50 years between master plans is quite a long time. Uh, Boston was on a national stage. It uh, uh, really got worldwide attention. This is an issue of Architectural Forum entirely dedicated to what was happening in Boston. It was seen as a leader. Uh, I also love the title of this article. You can see Ed Logue and Mayor Collins together. If you can't read it, it's called The New Boston, Men, Projects, and an End to Despair. So incredibly dramatic uh, titles and also somewhat sexist titles. Um, but uh, you can see the kind of drama that existed at this time. Uh, this is Life magazine. You can see the kind of recoiling and horror at the prospect of modernism coming into the back bay. Um, this is Life magazine about Boston. One of the wonderful things about this time period is that uh, groups like the BSA and Kevin Lynch prevented this sort of thing from happening in the back bay by creating what's known as the high spine, so moving big development away from the historic core. And uh, so this is another part of the master planning that I think was insightful and thoughtful. Well, that can open up a conversation around the relationship of modernism to preservation again. Yeah. So let's keep that on the table as something we can come back to. Um, it was a time of great controversy. Ed Logue was not, uh, you know, many people loved him, thought he was a great leader. Many people thought he was a, a, a terrible person. Uh, Kathleen Craven might have been one of his biggest critics. Uh, she's a quite famous character from the city, um, uh, opposing uh, urban renewal on many levels. Uh, and again, this is from Life magazine. Uh, this is the quotation from her. Mrs. Catherine Craven once said, the resemblances between Logue and Hitler are striking. Uh, and then her other opponent, uh, William J. Foley Jr., calls the BRA's work surgery by a quack. All in Life magazine playing out in the world. Imagine that kind of drama in our city. So I thought what I'd do is show one case study that we'll go talk about the third rail uh, for a few minutes and then we'll open up the conversation. Uh, uh, but City Hall really is such an important keystone building in the government center complex and also I think in the language of concrete modernism. It's helpful to understand its context a little bit more. It was um, uh, uh, created through a competition process, a nationwide search. There were 256 applicants, all American architects from across the country who submitted designs based on a really wonderful program outlined by Lawrence B. Anderson, who is uh, uh, connected with MIT. Uh, and it outlined really the content of what this building should be and even implied that 
Boston had been brick in one era and granite in another, and it needed a new language. And many of the architects of this era were looking for that new kind of civic language, a language of robust, powerful forms that could re represent not um, the commercial realm, which in the 50s, you know, had been glass and steel, but the civic realm, which should seem more permanent, more powerful. And there's, there was a real strong sense that monumentality in architecture could reflect the civic realm better than glass and steel could. And there was a little bit of in, in, uh, uh, a sense that, that that would happen in the competition brief. Uh, out of the 256, eight finalists were chosen. So you can see if you got the best city hall out of the eight finalists, um, you could have gotten that. That would have been kind of crazy. Uh, this is the winning scheme by Colman McKinnell and Knowles. And one thing that I find really interesting is that seven of the eight schemes that were finalists were concrete buildings. The only one that wasn't was from Chicago. So they were under the spell of Mies van der Rohe, where everything was glass and steel. Uh, but all the other entries from across the country in various places were uh, concrete buildings. Uh, when Colman McKinnell's um, uh, project was selected, uh, it was announced, um, uh, it caused what was called a dignified controversy. Uh, there were articles in, in magazines and newspapers uh, saying that this is the worst thing that could happen to Boston or this is the best thing that could happen to Boston. Uh, and I think it really unleashed uh, a lot of questions uh, about what the building was. The mayor famously asked, uh, what the hell is that, when it was unveiled, <laughs> although he used a much worse word that I won't use in this context. Um, and, uh, you know, there were things like this. this is maybe my favorite cartoon of it. Experts differ on design for Boston City Hall. You can see all the architects and politicians and then a very happy pigeon. Um, <laughs> but it was a building that represented government. Uh, and I think it was attractive to the, um, to the jury because of that, that it had this tripartite character of, uh, that, that came out of the program document. The program really outlined three elements of the building, the, the bureaucratic spaces, the ceremonial spaces, and then down below in the brick zones, the public high-use intensity spaces. And you really see that in the building. Um, they were attracted to it in many ways. I think for Coleman McKinnell, uh, they were also attracted to the use of concrete as an expressive material. Uh, Michael, in his interview with us, said, I think if we could have done it, we would have used concrete to make the light switches. They were so enamored with it. But it is, on many levels, a thorough work of art. Everything about it is conceived, uh, unlike most buildings today, uh, everything about it is conceived in precise uh, and geometrically pure. So it makes it both a challenge and an interesting artifact. Uh, it received worldwide attention. Uh, in fact, such strong attention was thrust on it that it became the model for many buildings across the globe. You can see its influence all over the place. In fact, this one in Istanbul seems like a, um, you know, like maybe a 12th grade architect uh, got together and, and tried to redesign a little clumsy version of the very, very faithful to um, the original intent. Uh, and you can see that it was used as a kind of symbol of civic life, of a, a, a kind of building that reflected civic character. Since then, I think it's, uh, it's been portrayed much more as a dystopian architecture, much concrete architecture. These are all films that are connected to Boston City Hall, and it's always brooding uh, and kind of, you know, something like an FBI headquarters in uh, Black Mass or other kinds of things. This is a droid ad where in some future we're, we're living in some dark world uh, with our droid uh, phones to save us. 
Um, so it has that kind of, uh, um, I think it's been inherited or received in a very different way than it was intended. It was intended to be civic, it was intended to be collective and grand, and it's been received in almost the opposite sense. Um, we've been tracking words, <laughs> words relative to uh, buildings, and this is, uh, this is literally from Google Dictionary. Uh, use that word monstrosity in a sentence, uh, and in their first definition they use it not once, but twice, as a multi-story monstrosity of raw concrete, a concrete monstrosity. So the word monstrosity is somehow connected to concrete so directly, even in our lexicon. Uh, some of these synonyms are also pretty great, excrescence, horror, eyesore. So we've sort of connected this, but I, I think the language is sort of a telling thing for us as well. Uh, if you look at the word monstrosity in relationship to Victorian, for instance, to many of the buildings that we love, it was also described as a monstrous type of architecture. And when it tends to happen, this is tracking, so the red box is the era of the construction, the Victorian era. And then about 40 to 60 years later, you see how it becomes described as a terrible thing. Right, 40 to 60 years later, just the time when buildings become outmoded or outdated. Same thing's happening here. This is the era that we're looking at, about 40 to 60 years. We're right about here. We're about 50 years after. You can see that it's starting to get off the charts in terms of use of that term. So again, we start to lose appreciation and understanding for the origins of these buildings. Uh, and the consequences of this can be disastrous, in my mind, unless we don't like them or think they shouldn't be here anymore. But cultural vandalism has been happening across the country. Many of these buildings are being destroyed. And sadly, I think they're being replaced by much less monumental or much less civic kinds of buildings. They're being replaced by office buildings that are thin and transparent and other kinds of things, whereas they were robust and powerful and meant to represent a collective realm. So I'll end by coming back to Boston City Hall uh, because it remains a question in our city what to do with something like Boston City Hall. Uh, the city's actually studying its future now. Um, there's a, a consulting team looking at it. We're historical advisors to that consulting team. But uh, we've been pushing everybody to return back to the original words of um, Michael McKinnell and Gerhard Kallman that they saw it as the start of an embellishment, decoration, and endowment of the robust armature by the public. Uh, and that seems like something that never really happened with the building. It never really acquired that kind of energy and enthusiasm of the public, and it's something which it's ready for. Uh, Michael also very recently told us that uh, he believes that the building should change. In its DNA is an ability or a desire to see it change. And for him, what's important is that whatever happens is bold and self-confident. However the building changes should have the same kind of level of uh, heroic attitude as the original uh, insights of the building. So I'll, I'll end it there Good. and uh, open up to some time for you to ask okay. questions. Okay, we're going to have some conversation between the two of us, but then we intend to open it all to the room. So um, begin to formulate what it is you want to hear that you, we haven't talked about yet or to come back to things we've already talked about. Since you focused on City Hall, you read the Globe this morning, you realize City Hall and City Hall Plaza is still something that's very much not only in the debate around a more professional design solution, but the mayor's and this current administration's um, relationship with Delaware North to create a sort of playground in the plaza. And uh, the cabanas and chalets and temporary sales spaces and the sort of 
Olmsted-like skating rink with an island in the middle and other things. We need to get serious about what this context is and how best to respond to it. And I was delighted to see that the executive director, is Greg here tonight, of the uh, Boston um, Preservation Alliance was rising up to say, is this really a solution equal to the design integrity of what it is uh, that is intended to embellish. Um, so we'll keep um, City Hall obviously on the table, but let me ask you, Mark, uh, first to think about, having problems with my ear here, uh, <laughs> to think about what it is in the 1960s and 70s that produced really the last period in which the production of architecture in Boston was attracting widespread, even international, attention. I'm not sure that anything like that kind of focus on Boston has occurred since then. What was it about that period, do you think, that made it uh, so hubristic, so heroic, so um, desperate uh, in some <laughs> ways? And um, what can we learn from that? Well, I, so I, I think uh, there were two things that contributed to the high level of architecture. One was a, a kind of environment in which the discourse of the schools was very connected to the city. Um, and so, I, you know, you had uh, people like uh, Sert on the design commission that oversaw the construction of the city and that oversaw the, um, regulated the design quality in the city. Uh, so you had the very highest um, levels of thinkers guiding the way the city would grow and ensuring that the best work was necessary in the city. Uh, and that was a kind of civic realm, I think, participating in, an edu in the educational realm. Uh, and on the other hand, you had a very strong uh, central authority of the BRA uh, that was pushing an agenda. Um, uh, Michael McKinnell told me that, um, that Ed Logue sort of had the ability to uh, was given the right by the mayor to kind of appoint the design architects and that the mayor could control who was the production architect. So you got the political uh, team in there, but you also got the high design team. And I, I think Logue had a really strong presence and role in the shaping of who built here and, and how they built here. He seemed to admire concrete, and I think one of the reasons why there is so much of it at this time and at such a high quality was because of the strong arm you know, one of the things we critique about this era is too much strong-armed planning from the top down, but one of the benefits of that was uh, a quality of design that I don't think we see uh, as often in our city today or as consistently in our city. I think there's some great buildings that have been built recently, uh, but we don't see it quite as consistently. Okay, so let's confront the C word. Okay. Uh, what does concrete really mean as a material at this time? Why is it the darling of uh, the profession? Uh, what makes concrete successful, not structurally, but aesthetically? What are the best examples and the worst examples of concrete that we've inherited in the city? Maybe you don't <laughs> want to talk about the worst, but let's go to the best. Uh, well, so concrete, I think, is, is chosen, as I mentioned, because, it's a, uh, because it can reflect the strength of the civic realm, uh, because it's also connected into the modern ideology of being able to um, uh, to use a material in its uh, authentic in an authentic way uh, so architects I think are drawn to it because the the concrete can be both the interior and the exterior it can be the structure as well as the enclosure it can kind of perform all the roles of the building uh, and many architects um, uh, like Araldo Casuta who is the design uh, lead for the Christian Science Center 
uh, he and um, uh, Henry Cobb also spoke about it as though once the building, once the concrete was poured, the building was done. Right? They loved that. They were really drawn to the fact that you you really had the authentic work of architecture at the completion of the pour. Uh, sure, you had to put windows in it and maybe you had to put air conditioning and all that, but that didn't really matter in the same way as the uh, language, this sort of powerful language of the, the purity of the idea that the architecture wasn't layered, it wasn't thin, it wasn't flimsy, but it was actually a robust system. So I think architects were drawn to it. Uh, there were certainly economic reasons to be drawn to it and economic reasons why it died. Um, that it, um, you know, originally in Europe it was used uh, post-war because steel wasn't really available uh, after the war, immediately after the war. Uh, that wasn't so much the case in the U.S., but it was transplanted. First it became a kind of image that grew out of that necessity uh, that I think got translated into the U.S. scene and was actually affordable to use as a material system uh, in places like Boston. Many of the architects we spoke to also credited um, a very um, invested uh, construction industry that believed in concrete and sort of worked to produce high-quality, refined, uh, architectural-grade concrete. Uh, in terms of the best and the worst, I mean, um, so Pei's office usually is conceived of as the one that has the most refined concrete, uh, the most powerful uh, attention to detail and the most refined. But if you actually go to the Christian Science Center, there's a lot of spalling and a lot of problems um, that have been happening in those buildings. Uh, and yet you don't notice it as much because it's kind of buff color. It's a lighter color. It's almost a stone color concrete. Mm -hmm. I think the ones that people tend to have more problems with are the grayer buildings. Um, and maybe one of the hardest ones to love, although it's my favorite of all of them, is Paul Rudolph's building, the Government Service Center, because it's got a rough concrete finish. It's, it was bush hammered, which means that literally, uh, let's see if I can find it. Um, yeah, this one, literally uh, craftsmen went up and hammered at the ribbing of that concrete to make it a regular texture. Um, a word that gets thrown around in this period a great deal that perhaps has lost its power or meaning is utopia. So mm -hmm. can I ask you to think about what you've learned of the 1960 to 75 period's desire to achieve utopia, which of course is an impossibility. Utopia doesn't exist, <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, we want to push towards it. What did that mean? What are the components of utopia then? And to what extent are there elements of that that still resonate in what is being done or people hope to do now or things that we should be bringing into the current debate uh, about the future of architecture in the city? Well, I think, you know, one of the mischaracterizations of this time period is that it's, you know, this architecture looks Stalinist, it looks sort of uh, oppressive. Um, in fact, I think it was conceived with really the opposite intentions of that. It was believed to uh, reflect the civic sphere and also to reflect a, a kind of grandeur of collectivity that, um, it was important to have that, that kind of character. And, and that comes from a utopian aspiration. I'm not, sure that it, uh, I'm not sure that I would ever describe these buildings as trying to achieve utopia, but they, there was an aspiration that was perhaps, uh, again, the, the word hubristic might be part of it, but of making a better world uh, with a powerful government. And so there was a belief, you know, this is, all of this work is beginning in the era of JFK, uh, and um, you know, the Great Society period uh, that follows that with Johnson. There was a belief that government could do good things for people and that 
its architecture should reflect its value uh, and its importance and its permanence. Where we could take that today, to me, the, the major lesson of this time period is not, in fact, architectural, although I would love us to have higher quality architecture everywhere. Uh, the major learning lesson for me is, or maybe, maybe the thing that I lament most, is that we don't believe in uh, civic activity, civic life, civic government, nor do we invest in it in the same way uh, as then. Today, we're really dependent on the private realm to do things like build our public spaces for us. Uh, we don't have the kind of funding that was being channeled into the city, mostly federal funding, that was being channeled in to make a better city for everyone. Uh, today, we sort of depend on the um, you know, private real estate interests to do that for us. So cities don't have the kind of, well, Boston was broke at this point, but it had federal funds flowing in uh, pretty freely. And I think we're, we're missing that. We're missing a, a sort of aspiration um, that, that existed in that era. And let me just in, in sort of close with this issue that you allude to, and that's the relationship of the historic preservation movement to concrete modernism and modernism at large. Certainly, we could spend time thinking about the fact that the demolition of the West End and the creation of the Beacon Hill Historic um, com Commission or historical uh, um, uh, neighborhood are both in the middle of the 1950s, then on to the Back Bay, the South End by the 1980s. So Boston becomes a sort of warfare, a tug of war between the modernists and the preservationist camps. And yet we're now caught in a situation where the preservationists are being asked whether this is part of the cultural inheritance that they need to embrace and how they should do it. Do you, do you have any speculations about that relationship, how it's evolved, uh, and how peace can be achieved at this point? <laughs> yeah. I, my experience has actually been one of the preservation community embracing this work. I'm not sure if I've just met the right preservationist, but uh, that I think there's quite a lot of people at Boston Preservation Alliance, Dolcomomo is founded around the idea of preserving modernism. Uh, and there seems to be quite a lot of interest in the fact that these are artifacts of a particular era, the way uh, you know an ancient face might be an artifact of its era. These are all artifacts of a time when we believed in government, uh, when we believed in civic action, when we believed in monumentality, and there are artifacts of that, and we should respect them as such. Um, but also there's a second layer to them that I think uh, is often misunderstood. Generally, people consider them alien to the city. Um, they think of them as different. Um, but the architects at the time saw concrete and this language as far more consistent with Boston's heritage uh, than glass and steel would have been. They saw it as a heavy language that mirrored things like the granite warehouses uh, uh, in the simplicity and the strength and the kind of nobility of their construction. Uh, and so uh, the architects of this era really saw this as a way to be both new by using a new, a new um, material, but also to reflect a close connection with the historic uh, weight and qualities of the architecture that already existed in Boston. Uh, so thank you thank very you much, very everyone. Much. Thank you.